Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. This morning, we're taking a look at Matthew, also known as Levi here. He is the disciple that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And despite the fact that he wrote one of the Gospels, obviously by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's interesting because we see so little of him. In fact, really, the only thing that we know about Matthew from the Scriptures is this passage right here and the other passages that cover this same account. And I think that in many ways it shows the humility of Matthew. Matthew writing a gospel about Jesus Christ, of course, could have included himself in many different ways. And yet by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we really don't see anything at all. In fact, the one thing that we know about Matthew is that he was a publican, which as we'll see was not exactly uh, a well-respected profession. And that's the thing that he included in his own account was that he was a publican. Now, if you're not familiar with what a publican is, a publican is a tax collector. Now, in the U.S., we have tax collectors. It's called the IRS, right? Not exactly everybody's favorite government department, right? Not exactly the thing that brings joy to your heart. And so you could imagine already publicans not exactly being everybody's favorite person in government. But in Israel at this time, Matthew, being a publican, had an even worse reputation because these publicans were not collecting taxes for the seed of David, the king of Israel. They were not collecting taxes for the local municipalities and things like that. These publicans were collecting taxes for the Roman government. And at the time of Christ, Israel has been under Roman rule for when he was born about 60 years. So about this time now, it's been about 90 years, 90 years, perhaps a little bit more. And one of the aspects of Roman oppression that was quite heavy was this taxation. One writer called it methodical, relentless, and ruthless. And there were basically two different kinds of basic taxes. The first was a toll tax, which is kind of similar to what we might consider an income tax. And then there was a ground tax, which is like property taxes. So not that dissimilar from uh, the kind of taxes that you and I might face today. Well, the, the process of this taxation would be that the Roman senators and other high-ranking officials would essentially bid from the, the Roman government the ability to collect taxes from particular regions. So they would have, I think, a five-year time period of a set taxed rate, and they would bid for these opportunities. They would buy these taxing rights. And those who held the taxing rights were called publicani. So these individuals, obviously being senators and high-ranking officials, they wouldn't collect the taxes themselves. They would hire people to collect the taxes for them. So they would have a system where you would have those that owned the rights to collect the taxes. They would hire people to collect the taxes for them to bring it to the Roman government. And these uh, uh, individuals that would hire people, of course, they would hire people from the area. So in the land of Israel, they would hire Israelites. And you could imagine that these Israelites that saw other Israelites collecting taxes against their own people for the Roman government were not liked very well. So 
right off the bat, being a publican means, in, in a way, you're collecting taxes from your people for the enemy, right? Because the Roman government is the enemy, right? They were expecting the Messiah to come. They would rule and reign. So they're not well-liked. On top of that, many of these publicans would extort the people that they were taxing. So there were some basic categories. They would collect the general taxes. You know, we, we mentioned the land tax, the property tax, the income tax, some things like that. And they were kind of set rates. But there was another type of tax collector, and he would collect taxes that would be more similar to what we might consider import taxes, tollway taxes, all sorts of things like that. And they were given a lot of leeway and a lot of authority and power. They could go onto somebody's boat and see what they collected and set a tax for them. In fact, they were even given the ability to open private mail to see whether there was business being done there and give them access in that sort of a way. So what would happen would be that they were given the, the leeway to essentially set the taxes there. And you could imagine that, all right, they have the ability to set the tax and there's an incentive then for them to collect extra. And really, this is true for every single level all the way up, that there was a set tax rate by the Roman government, but everybody that was actually collecting the taxes, if you collected any extra, you got to keep it. So there was a high incentive to try to raise the tax a little bit extra than the Roman government set rate. And so there's this system that's in place by the Roman government. They're hiring Israelites to collect taxes from their fellow Israelites who already didn't like the whole system to begin with. And then on top of that, they were pulling in extra money. So you could imagine that you would notice these individuals who are publicans. They're already not liked. They're collecting taxes. And because they are getting extra because they're extorting their fellow Israelites, they're all, everybody's doing this everywhere, uh, they have a little extra money. And what do people do with a little extra money? They spend it. So you could imagine the publicans, you know, that they're living, and it seems like all these publicans live in really nice houses. Not only do they live in really nice houses, they're driving Rolls Royces around, and they're wear wearing Rolex watches. And they're, they're wearing these Gucci suits and, and these fancy bags. And, and you're thinking, hold on a second. I know what the Roman tax is. And I know what you would get paid to do that. You seem like you're getting off pretty good. And they would notice, of course, that they were being extorted. So these publicans were absolutely hated by everybody in the country. One scholar wrote that these publicans were barred from the synagogue and were forbidden to have any religious or social contact with their fellow Jews. He was ranked with the unclean animals, which a devout Jew, a Jewish man or woman, would not even touch an unclean animal. They would not even touch these individuals. They were considered... Uh, to be traitors and congenital liars. I mean, this was the reputation of publicans. Publicans were hated because they were uh, taking money, collecting taxes for the enemy. They were extorting their fellow individuals. And here we find ourselves with one of the disciples, Matthew, being one of these publicans. So what can we learn from this? 
What we can learn is that no matter who you are or what you've done in your past, you can still follow Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Doesn't matter how everybody views you. Doesn't matter your reputation. Doesn't matter your past. Matthew was not liked by anybody. And Jesus came to this individual and said, come and follow me. Come and follow me. So what can we learn from this? Well, we can learn a couple of things. Number one, we can see that Matthew was sacrificial. No matter who you are or where you're from, there's always something that you can give over to the Lord. There's always something that you can say, God, I don't have much, but what I have, I will give it to you. I will give you my life. I will give you my time. I will give you my finances. I will give up these opportunities, all of these sorts of things. We see that Matthew, though he was a publican and though he would think, well, what do I have to give to the Lord? He had his life that he could give to God. In fact, Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus Christ already in the beginning teaches, you want to be my disciple? There's a level of sacrifice that is needed. We notice that his sacrifice was immediate. In verse number 27, it says, And after these things he went forth and saw a publican named Levi, this being Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom so he's there in his office essentially collecting taxes that's what he's doing and he said unto him follow me so we've taken a look at some of the disciples uh, particularly peter andrew james and john these are kind of if you want to think of it this way the big four disciples these are the disciples that for the most part we know the most about and of course we know about their calling right they were out fishing they came back they were washing their nets jesus came and said follow me well the process of this whole thing was that as you remember andrew and john were already disciples of john the baptist John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, and they went and followed Jesus. Andrew found his brother Peter, and of course John is the brother of James. And so there's already this understanding of they were following Jesus. They had gone back to fishing, and Jesus comes again and says, come and follow me. So when we see that these disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, had left all to follow him, that's, that's wonderful that it was immediate for them, but even more so for Matthew, Jesus is just walking through his city, and he comes up to Matthew and says, come and follow me. This, as far as we know, is their very first interaction, and he drops everything, and he follows Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, my testimony is that I grew up going to the church, and uh, my parents got saved when I was very, very young. So my whole life, as long as I can remember, I went to church services every week, every Sunday, and then later on down the road, every Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday school, all of the different services. And we had gone to those things. We went to the youth activities and things like that. And so I grew up going to church, having a Bible, going to youth activities, going to Sunday school, going to VBA, doing all of these things is, are the things that I remember. But I didn't get saved until I was 20. I was going to church essentially my whole life, and it took many, 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 many times of hearing the gospel before I put my trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, I'm thankful for the patience of God. I'm grateful for the long-suffering mercy of God, that God would be patient with me after all of these times. Every once in a while, I'll meet somebody who says, I got saved the very first time I heard the gospel. And every time I think that, I think, that's incredible to me. 
That's incredible to me because, at least for my testimony, I heard the gospel many, many times before I put my trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, Pastor Choi is one of those individuals. He heard the gospel one time, and the very first time he put his trust in Jesus Christ. To me, that's incredible that somebody hears it the first time, puts their trust in Jesus Christ. Matthew, in a way, of course, this is not his salvation, of course, but in a way, it's Jesus coming to him, first time calls him, follow me, and he does, and he follows Jesus Christ that very first time. And we've noted in a couple other places the importance of timing, the importance of following God when he calls you. We've noted that some of these disciples would have missed out on some opportunities. Philip and Nathaniel would have missed out on the opportunity of seeing the very first miracle of Jesus Christ if they did not follow him when he called them. Matthew here as well is already in a situation where he hears the call and he follows him right away. I think the timing is so important. I think about Philip in Acts chapter number 8. Uh, he has left Jerusalem. He has gone into Samaria. He preaches the gospel. There's lots of people getting saved. It's an incredible time. And the Holy Spirit says to him in Acts chapter 8, verse number 26, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. So the Holy Spirit, in the middle of this incredible church building, people are getting saved, the church is gathering together, others are getting saved, added to the church. It's an incredible time. God moves in him, I want you to leave and go to the desert. Okay? Now, I don't know about what you're expecting to find in the desert, but when I go to the desert, I'm not expecting to find anything. So when Philip is told to go to the desert, I don't know what he's thinking or what he's expecting, but I would be expecting... You're taking me away from something to go to nothing. That would be my expectation. Philip, though, is obedient. And guess what he finds there in the middle of the desert? He finds the Ethiopian eunuch in verse number 27. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. So here is this Ethiopian eunuch. He has gone to Jerusalem, and he's on his way back. He's going down this road to go back to Ethiopia, and Philip meets him there in the middle of the desert. Imagine if Philip had said to God, God, I know that you want me to go, but some great things are happening here. Just give me another couple of days. Give me another week or two. If he had gone in another week or two, he would have gone to the desert and seen nothing and said, God, why did you send me to the desert? And God would have said, well, you missed it. The timing is so important. His uh, sacrifice was immediate, but it was also irreversible. Again, going back to the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were fishermen. They forsook all and followed him. We know that. But we also know that after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter said, I go a fishing. He went back. He went back to fishing, which was something that he could do being a fisherman. Matthew, though, being a publican, could not just get his job back. It would have been taken by somebody else. Somebody else collecting the taxes would have taken his place, and he would have gone back, and they would have said, sorry, too bad, you don't get your place back, and he would have lost the opportunity. He would have known that in following Christ, he's leaving that behind. In a way, he's kind of burning that bridge of that thing that I'm leaving, I'm not going back because I can't go back anymore. 
I'm going to go and follow him. Now, this sounds like a great sacrifice, and of course it is. It is a great sacrifice. But I also want to see that Matthew's sacrifice was completely worth it. That Matthew's sacrifice was worth everything that he gave up. Because oftentimes when we think about the sacrifice uh, that we as believers do for God, we think about the fact that we're giving up something. But when it comes to the sacrifice for the Lord, you're not giving up anything. You're just exchanging what you have right now for something better. That's the lesson that we learn in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses, of course, was raised in Pharaoh's house. He would have had all the access and privilege of somebody growing up in the king's home, and he gave it up. But he said, I'm not giving up anything because I'm going from the king of Egypt to serving the king of the universe, the king of all creation. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus has this interaction with Peter. Peter says, behold, we have forsaken all and follow thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life. Jesus Christ tries to give us this lesson, this understanding and knowledge. When you give something for the Lord, you're receiving something so much greater. And so we see that Matthew was, first of all, sacrificial, but we also see that Matthew was soul winning. Matthew was a soul winner, which is interesting because Matthew was not a popular person. And people don't listen to highly unpopular people, right? They don't take their advice. They don't follow their directions. But Matthew is a soul winner, which tells me that you don't have to be popular to reach people for Christ. Sometimes people think about, oh, I don't have a big Instagram following. Oh, people, you know, I'm not the most popular person. How am I going to reach people for Christ? Well, I think often you'll find that chasing popularity or those that seek to be well-liked is often a killer of soul winning in the Christian life because the fear of man bringeth a snare. So Matthew is not popular, but he still knew somebody that would hear the gospel. He had other publicans that would hear, which tells me this thing about Matthew. As a soul winner, he did not focus on the people who would not listen. He focused on the people who would. Because every one of us has somebody that'll listen to us. That when you talk, they listen. You have a friend. When you, when you reach out to them, they respond. They want to meet up. They'll listen to you. Every single one of us. You might have a coworker. You might have a neighbor. You might have a family member. And this is this Matthew. And he has somebody who will listen to him. Every one of us has somebody who will listen to us for whatever reason. You have a relationship. You have a friendship. You're a family together. Even something as simple as you live on the same street as somebody else can open up an opportunity to reach somebody else with the gospel. 
So what does Matthew do? We read this a little bit earlier, but we see that he initiated contact to reach souls. Verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his own house. So Matthew wants to reach people. So what does he do? He opens up his house and anybody that wants to come can come. So publicans and others, in other passages we see that they're called sinners, publicans and sinners come to his home. He didn't wait for his co-workers to be like, hey, Matthew, where are you at? I haven't seen you in a long time. Where have you been? What's, what's going on? He initiated the contact and wanted to reach out to somebody else. And that's important for us as soul winners. Matthew chapter 28 says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. So we need to go out and we need to go and reach. We need to initiate contact. Acts chapter 1 says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So all of these disciples that are in Jerusalem are supposed to reach people in the uttermost part of the earth. How does that happen? They're not going to expect the uttermost part of the earth to come to Jerusalem. They got to get out there. So God wants us to go. Acts chapter 8 says, therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So if we're going to be soul winners, we need to go out and reach somebody else. Uh, you know, we, we're here in Gardena. Of course, we don't live too far away from the ocean. And, you know, I take my kids out to uh, the pier. I take them out to the beach. And, I, I, you know, we go out there and sometimes we'll go out on the pier and you'll see, you know, the surfers that are out there. Sometimes you'll see some people trying to, you know, go out there and swim and stuff like that. And you have the lifeguards that are there, right? You have the little lifeguard. I don't know what they call them, the little station, you know? And uh, sometimes they're inside, sometimes they're outside. And the lifeguard is there to make sure that nobody drowns, right? To make sure that nobody drowns. If somebody out there is, drow is drowning, the lifeguard doesn't say, well, come over here, and if you come over here, I'll help you, okay? The drowning man will say, I can't. I'm drowning, okay? You gotta come here to help me. You know, the illustration that Jesus gives is, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost, right? If you're lost, you don't know where you are or how to get to where you wanna go. Somebody's got to go find you. Now, I know today we all have smartphones, and we all have GPS, and we all have the maps, apps, and all of that kind of stuff, but we used to live in a day and age when we didn't have that. You know, here in, in LA, you know, you got like Normandy, you know, you drive up Normandy and some, it might disconnect, but then later on it'll be Normandy again. If you're on Normandy, you're like, I know where I'm at. You know, I know generally where I am. I grew up in the Seattle area and in the Seattle area, it's very hilly. So none of the roads are straight. They go around and this and that. And oftentimes what you'll find is that the road will go east and then randomly it'll just start going north. And you have no idea, is this going to go east again? I don't know. Not only that, when you go east and then you go north, it changes names. It goes from like Artesia Boulevard and the road just turns and then it'll be 192nd Street. And then it'll turn again and it'll be a different name. And then you'll try to find your way back and you'll be like, I'm looking for Artesia and I have no idea where it is. You get lost so easily. And there were a lot of times where I would get lost and I would have no idea. So when I got my license, my parents said, here, here's a map, <laughs> learn to read it and so you can find out where you are. Or worst case scenario, ask somebody. When you are lost, you need help. You need somebody to come and help you. And that's the illustration that God gives to us as soul winners. He initiated this contact and he invited a whole lot of people. 
in verse number 29. And there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. He invites everybody that's willing to come. Why don't you come over? Come over to my house. We'll have a great meal together. I want to introduce you to this Jesus, the Messiah. And a whole lot of people do come. As soul winners, we do need to think about this picture that Jesus Christ gives, which is as soul winners, we are like farmers. Farmers don't scout out their land and find the absolute perfect piece of, you know, dirt with the exact perfect amount of nutrition and take a single seed and go, all right, there we go. All right. Now let's find another one. And you know what farmers do? They just take the seed and they just start throwing it everywhere, wherever it goes. All right, you take it and you receive it and hopefully you grow. And as soul winners, thinking of the mentality as a farmer, we're just, we just got to go, go out there and give it to as many people as we possibly can. And so here is Matthew thinking about, well, I don't know which publicans will listen and which will not, so I'm just going to invite all of them. I'm going to invite all of them. Some will listen and some will not. But as he is doing this in verse number 30, we see, but their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we see Jesus's response, and we usually think that this is an affront against Jesus. But the interesting phrase here in verse number 30 is, But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against not Jesus, but the disciples. So the scribes and Pharisees are murmuring against the disciples, one of which being Matthew. So Matthew here is there hearing these scribes and Pharisees murmuring against himself that he is sitting down with people who are like himself. He was a publican. And so here is Matthew, and you can imagine what Matthew might be thinking, but there's some criticism that is being placed against Matthew the disciple. As believers, there's no escaping facing criticism because somebody's not going to like what you're doing. Amen? Somebody's not going to like it. Somebody's going to disagree. Somebody's going to oppose you. Somebody's going to criticize you. And we've got to know that our calling as a soul winner is more important than the criticism that we might face. That reaching somebody with the gospel is more important. Acts chapter number 17, verse 32 says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. But so Paul departed from among them. Verse 34, How be it? But certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul did not let the mocking and the criticism stop him from reaching people with the gospel. So here is Matthew. He's a publican. People don't like him, but still he's got something to give to follow Jesus. He can reach people with the gospel, but also we see that he was scriptural. What's interesting about Matthew, especially what we said towards the very beginning, was that they were barred from religious activity. They were barred from going into the synagogues. They were barred from all of these uh, uh, aspects of kind of the, the Jewish religious life, the Judaism, uh, Judaism that was there. So the fact that Matthew is penning 
the Gospel of Matthew should strike us as being very interesting. That Matthew is the one to write this first Gospel that we get to read. Which tells us that Matthew was a spiritual individual because without the Holy Spirit, you're not writing any part of the Bible. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, or 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So Matthew, of course, is a holy man of God. Having the Holy Spirit, he's yielding to the Holy Spirit, and he writes this first gospel. Not only that, for those of us, of course, we're not going to write any part of the Bible, but we can understand the Bible by being spiritual because the Bible says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So if we're going to have the Bible, read the Bible, and understand the Bible, we've got to be spiritual. We've got to grow in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means that we yield to the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So here we have Matthew being one of the disciples, and he is following the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands the scriptures and he's following the Lord. But what's interesting about his gospel is that he, in his gospel, quotes Old Testament scripture more than any of the other gospels. So Matthew is quoting so much more of the Old Testament than uh, any of the other gospels, more than Mark, Luke, and John which is interesting because it seems like his audience is to those that are Jewish. So he's writing to those that are Jewish as a publican, which is somebody that Jewish people hate. <laughs> so he's writing to them. So we know that this is probably the case because usually when you begin writing like a book or an article, you have to begin with a hook, right? You begin with an interesting story, you ask an interesting question, you, you, you write something to draw the reader in so that they'll be interested and continue to read, right? Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1 says this, The book of the generation of Je Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right? For the average individual, the average Gentile, we will be like, I'm not reading any more of this. And it gets even worse. Verse number two, verse number three, verse number four. It's just the genealogies. Not exactly the most exciting way to begin a book. Matthew, what are you doing? What he's doing is he's trying to reach those that are Jewish. So here is a Jewish man who is a publican, hated by his fellow Jewish men and women, writing this gospel to those individuals. What is going on? Well, he quotes more of the scriptures, and I believe this is a great case of this disciple saying, all right, you don't have to believe what I'm saying. You just look at the Bible. Don't trust me. Trust God. Don't trust my word for it. Trust the Bible. And so he pulls open the Bible and gives the Bible to others. As disciples, one of the most effective things, if not, you know, the most effective thing really is just open the Bible and give it to somebody. When you have somebody who's skeptical, they say, I don't believe the Bible. You don't have to say, oh, he doesn't believe the Bible. I should put this away and come up with something else. No, just keep giving him the Bible. 
The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. I say, I don't believe that. Well, I don't care if you believe it. I'm still going to say it to you because <laughs> it's still the truth. It's still the Bible. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, verse number two, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. That's our main point. That's what we are trying to communicate to people. God says in Jeremiah 23, is it not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? God simply says, isn't my word just like this hammer? The, the nail can say, I don't believe that the hammer works. And the hammer is going to say, I don't really care. <laughs> I'm just going to keep on using it. I'm going to keep on going. The nail says, you, can, you can't do this to me. Okay, sure, whatever you say. <laughs> you know, Just keep doing it. And that's what God wants us to do with the word of God being a hammer. Just say, just keep on using it. Just keep on using it. Some are harder than others. Some will receive, some will not receive, but just keep on giving the word. We also see that Matthew was strengthened by the scriptures. Matthew, of course, being a publican, was rejected and hated by his own people. Jesus Christ, being the Messiah, was rejected and hated by his own people. Matthew writes a lot about the rejection of Jesus Christ. He goes into detail with the trial and all of these sorts of things. It seems to be that Matthew recognizes the rejection that Jesus faced because he himself had faced that same kind of rejection. And it seems that Matthew could relate to Christ and gain comfort from it. If Jesus was hated, then, and, and he endured, and he continued, then so could I. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 11, Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For even here unto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. So it seems that Jesus is given this account in the Bible for us to learn from and to gain comfort. You know what? Jesus was rejected. You know what? When I face rejection, I can just go to the Lord and say, God, if you were able to endure, give me the strength so that I can endure as well. If you face some mocking and some persecution, I want to go and face it and continue to be faithful as well. Matthew, having this experience, was able to go to the Lord, see what the Lord went through, and gain some comfort from it as well. So here is Matthew, this publican. What was he able to do? Well, he still followed the Lord. He was reaching others for the gospel, and he was in the Bible, penned one of the gospels, and was gaining comfort from the scriptures as well. 